Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From Backpage, my name is Martin Gregg and welcome to a new episode of Between the Lines, the stories behind great sports writing. This is my conversation with award-winning sports writer Ian Ridley about his book Floodlit Dreams which documents Ian's spell as chairman of his hometown club, Weymouth FC. We've wanted to have Ian on the podcast for a while, and when a previous guest, Neil Forsyth, chose Floodlit Dreams as his all-time favourite sports book, we thought it was time to get him on. If you've ever dreamed of taking over your own club, then this podcast is for you. As usual, we also dive into the writing process and the -the behind-the-scenes stories that go into making a great book. Enjoy. We're talking a little bit about um, the entry point to Floodlit Dreams, which is Shakespeare's Seven Ages of Man. But you identify the three ages of the football fan, which is a really nice way into talking about your participation and involvement with uh, Weymouth FC, which is the basis for the book. Can you tell us a little bit about the three stages of the football fan? Of course, when you grow up watching your football team, you desperately want to play for them. Um, As as a kid, I, I wanted to play for my hometown team. As a kid, Weymouth Football Club was the pinnacle of my expectations and and love really I mean I saw Tottenham and Manchester United occasionally on the TV when I was growing up it was usually only a cup final or something and you saw England games but my weekly diet was watching Weymouth Football Club and I so wanted to play for them and then I went away to to university and um it suddenly dawned on me at the end of my university career I wasn't going to play for England under 21s anymore I was I was 22 years old when I graduated and it, and I think at that point I realized that I was a reasonable player but I wasn't going to play even semi-professionally. So of course my supporting career was sort of long and and varied and um I I was at university in London and watched a lot of games around London at the time it gave me my broadening education of of football but Weymouth was always my first love and um I was I started the London Supporters Club and of course you then think eventually well you know I'd love to manage them actually that because everybody thinks they can pick a team better everybody thinks they can recruit better than the manager they don't really have the idea of what goes into managing a football club and, and the finances and how you juggle and balance and all those kind of things. You just you just think you can do better than the manager. I mean, that's part of the, the fun of being a football fan. And then, you know, I got to a certain stage where that obviously is not going to happen either because I just don't have the background. But there is one thing left open <laughs> to somebody and that is either to own his local football club or the football club he loves or she. And... Um, I didn't have enough money to, but I had the wherewithal, the contacts, and I thought a bit of expertise and knowledge in the game when I got to my mid-40s to to actually try and become the chairman of my hometown football club. And it struck me that really is where the power is, actually. Players always say nothing compares to playing. Managers can't give up the game. It gets under their fingernails. They, They miss the dressing room. But for a chairman, you're the one 
that decides in the end. And and that was an enormous appeal for me to try and turn around my hometown football club. So, yeah, those were the three ages, I guess. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had a guest on Neil Forsyth who, who chose this uh, Floodlit Dreams as his all-time favourite sports book. And he picked up on the aspirational aspect of it. Uh, it's something that like, every fan dreams about to be in that position. We featured a book uh, about a year ago on this podcast called Four Iron and the Soul by yeah. Lawrence Donegan, um, which is a fantastic book. And again, it's this tantalising prospect of being able to influence something in this sphere, you know, this yeah. professional sphere. You yeah. can lay a glove on something that happens in yeah. this arena, which I think is fascinating, right? But I think the interesting thing about you getting involved in Weymouth is that I, I think you are more equipped than your average fan to actually influence things because you come from a journalism background. You, you have contacts within the game. You yeah. understand the media. You have maybe a rudimentary understanding of football fi- finances at least. So yeah. I, I don't know what you think. Do you think the bridge between journalist and chairman is maybe not as big as fan and chairman, for example? I don't think it is as big, no. Um, I definitely bridged the novice and the professional, definitely between the two. If you if you consider a fan novice, in terms of experience and being involved in football, I mean, I don't mean in terms of their knowledge. Had, having worked in football as a football journalist for 30-odd years at that point, I knew a lot of people and I did know how clubs' finances worked, sort of. I mean, it was a rude awakening when I finally got in and, and realised how football clubs hemorrhage money despite their best efforts. But I kind of thought I had a basis and a knowledge. And I'm very grateful to Neil for picking this book, I must say. And um, it took me three years to write it after I'd left Weymouth, simply because it was also raw and and even painful, to be honest. But I did think when I used to go and watch, my father was dying. And I used to go back quite a lot to Weymouth and try and take him to the game and spend some time with, with my father before he died. As you well know, fathers and sons and football is um is a big big subject and and with my own father i wanted to kind of get to know him again in my middle age and his older age so we spent a lot of time together and my father was even more of a moaner than i was and we'd sit and watch the game he he was a good player my father he's a better player than i was that's for sure and i used to watch him as a boy and uh he he could have been a a semi-pro but for circumstance and he had good knowledge of the game and i thought well I could do better than this. They were nearly bottom of the Southern League. The football was atrocious. The crowds were going down. And I thought, you know, it needs a new attitude. It needs some galvanising. And I thought in my naivety that that would be enough, in all honesty. But of course, it takes money. Just a little injection of of cash to change things, you know, get a better infrastructure around the club. And of course, the biggest thing is is a wage bill. You, you need to provide a decent wage bill. But I kind of knew people, I thought, uh, that could do better than the current manager there. I mean, virtually the first thing I did, when, when the board finally agreed to my takeover proposal, because they'd run out of options, really, and they were losing so much money and had no prospect of improving the club or the team they finally gave in I very quickly sacked the manager which wasn't as painful as I thought it was going to be because I felt it needed doing and I had three or four managers in mind and I worked my way through the list I mean my my number one was always Steve Claridge I'd, I'd watched him when he was a player and I'd always loved his attitude at every club he'd been to and I'd become a friend and I'd written his book but he didn't want to do it uh, he was still at Millwall he was pondering a new contract there 
So I interviewed two or three others and, and was very close to appointing somebody. And then Steve came back to me and said, you know what, I think I'll give it a go. Now, once you have a figure like that, you know, the manager is the pivotal figure at a football club. Once you have a figure like that, you are going to galvanise the club and you're going to bring people with you. And all of a sudden, do you know what? Steve phoned me up the other day. This is very interesting, actually. It's, and you've jogged my memory here, Martin. Steve phoned me up about a week ago and he said, um, I've just been reading Floodlit Dreams. And I said, have you read it before? He said, no, never. I said, you've had that book. He said, it was in my bedroom cabinet. Um, it's been there for 15 years and I've never read it. I said, you must be bored finally to read a book. And I said, come on, what do you think? He said, well, I'm, I wanted to ring you. I'm 15 pages from the end. And I just wanted to ring. And honestly, this is what he said. I just wanted to thank you for one of the best years of my career. It was amazing what we did that year and what we achieved. And if the bloke that came in had just left us alone, we'd have got them up into the Football League. It was a great season. We had 18 months, basically, but the, the only full season we had. It was a wonderful time of everybody pulling together. It was a great season, but and I think it made for a great book. And one of the, the things that I really appreciated and liked about the book was you talked about the, the rawness of the emotions, and that's what you get from that book. You get that you are living through this hurricane, in your life and it's incredible I, I want to ask you about that because you, you said you wrote it over like was it three years after the end of it but this stuff must have been you know still at the front of your mind you must still have been processing yeah. all this information what was the writing process like was it cathartic in a way do you know martin i'm a writer and so i always make notes one of the ideas was that i would write a book um, about going into Weymouth to raise money for Weymouth and that the advance would go into the football club. But of course, the guy that took over after, uh, who kind of forced me out, a guy called Martin Harrison and then sacked Steve, he he was throwing money at it. So the club had no need of, of my input anymore. But that was the idea. I would keep notes through the season and I would, I would write the book at the end of the season and when, any advance I got for it, I put into the football club. And we had a, a film crew following us for the year as well that I'd also organized through my contacts and they paid us £20,000 to follow us for the season for a BBC2 series called Football Diaries. So that was all money and, and I that was one thing I could do as a journalist, arrange and, and get sponsorship and, and media coverage. So when I came to write it, I had all these notes and I kind of knew what I wanted to say. And it was interesting that three years had lent me a perspective on it. When I was ousted as chairman, I was absolutely furious, really angry with, with Martin Harrison for spoiling what we had going for us, a process that was that was gonna be was gonna end with us in the football league, I hoped. So that anger had gone and I was able to write it a bit more dispassionately, uh, a bit more analytically. Even even so, I was still quite hurt, I think, by what had happened. It was really weird. When I was chairman, you know, you'd go to an away game. I remember early on, we, we were unbeaten in the first eight, ten games, something like that. And we won away at a place called Tiverton. And there were a group of fans behind the goal chanting my name. And I thought, this is ridiculous. You know, nobody chants for a chairman, for God's sake. But I was also realistic enough to, to that could turn one day. Um, and for that day, it was just so wonderful. But then it turned sour simply. Be, and from 
being, you know, sort of kicked out as chairman, the fans just moved on very quickly within two or three days. Oh, well, we got a geezer with money. He's going to he's gonna take us up and all that. It was literally the king is dead, long live the king. And I was still quite hurt for a long time after this. So I think a mixture of dissipated anger and, and pain made for quite a good book, really. I'm fascinated by the fact that, you, you know, this meticulous note-taking, because that, that yeah. allows you to step back into your own shoes, even if you're writing it a year, 18 months, two years down the line, you can yeah. still conjure up those emotions because you've got this down at the time and, and you can Well, remember. I think I've always, I've always had, journalism's taught me this, particularly when I was a feature writer, a colour writer, I've always had a sort of eye and an ear for a ridiculous line of dialogue and something silly, you know, some, you know, I remember, for example, I I went in the local paper saying we need a lot of volunteers to get the ground back up to scratch and all that. And some bloke came in one morning, I was, I was there and said, I would, I I want a job. And I said, okay, what do you want to do around the club? And he said, I want to be the bloke that gets all these kids, stops them sitting on the wall. They get in my way when I'm watching the game. And, you know, that kind of ridiculous little detail, it's the detail that makes books, I think. You know, the the sort of things you can't get in newspapers, really. And and the the offbeat and the quirky. And and those are the sort of notes I would take as we went along. It's interesting. You're right. I think uh, details are so important to, to making good books great. And I think one of the things I love about this book is the... I would say the transparency is amazing the way that you meticulously document the club's finances, you know, the profit yeah. and loss, the wage bills. It was interesting just from a fan's perspective almost, you know, that yeah. when you're outside looking in and you see you see how the sums add up or don't add up in, in a lot of cases. But I, I wonder, was that consciously done? I mean, because were you keen to get these these numbers down as almost as a fact of public record because, you know, to show what it takes... To, to, to try and run a club sustainably. Glad you picked up on that. It's very interesting because, if I'm honest, two things were going on. One, I wanted to settle some scores. Um, I can't deny it. Um, I wanted my side of the story out there because I'd been slagged off quite badly in the town. You know, I talk about a lot about the politics and personalities of small-town football. Even at Southern League level, you get it. So imagine what it's like everywhere else, even, you know, at bigger clubs and so on. But I wanted to settle some scores and, and as you say, put the record straight about the sums of money involved. Lies were told about me and Steve and the money involved. But also, when I'm a fan, I want to know things like wage bills, like the annual budget, um, yeah. like what we're making in sponsorship. Yeah. And those are the things that are going to give a book flesh really yeah. to be honest whenever I've ghostwritten a book for a footballer I remember doing it with a boxer a couple of years ago called Darren Barker who won a world title and I said come on Darren I want to know what your purse is I never really see it you you know you sort of hear these figures yeah. in the press but tell me what you made how how much tax you paid and all that and he kind of at first took some persuading but then he did and you know that's the stuff I want to read So if that's the stuff I want to read, then it's the stuff as a writer I have a duty to write. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the things that, that, that struck me, as I was reading the book, I was thinking, well, clearly Ian has taken a sabbatical from journalism to immerse himself fully into this world. And then it got to about page 98 or something. And then you said, in the meantime, I was still trying to do my job and cover the open golf at Sandwich and the Wimbledon yeah. fortnight. And I'm thinking, goodness me, what an incredible amount of work you've taken on to try and hold down a full-time job as yeah. a writer and then and then be, be leading this amazing double life. It must have been incredibly difficult it was difficult and the first six months I was still doing Saturday football for the observer so couldn't go to any games just midweek games I can remember when we got a terrible draw against the lower side in in the FA trophy on a Saturday and I was delighted because it meant I could go to the replay in midweek except the chairman in me wanted to win the game to get the money (laughs) <laughs> on the Saturday. So I was torn, really. Then Steve, I remember Steve, we started a wobble in early January, a couple of bad results just after Christmas. And he phoned me up one Saturday night and said, um, I'm getting some grief from the board when you're not here on a Saturday. And I said, why? And he said, well, they keep asking me questions about players and why is this happening and why is that happening? He said, I really need you here on Saturdays. So I went to the Observer and I said, look, can I pack up Saturdays and I'll take a pay cut? And, and they, allowed, they were great. They allowed me to do it. And I started watching games on Saturdays, um, but it, it caused me a lot of difficulties because it was difficult the following year after I got booted out of the club to then get back yeah. into the groove of, of my job, really. And there were t- I was still writing a column for the Observer and it was, it was getting harder to write a column without seeing football games on the... I could go in midweek and pick up material and what have you. But when you're not fully in the swing, you can't write proper columns. And it it started... It did start to become a problem for me. There's a really interesting line where you say, it was taking me a while to get used to being written about instead of the (laughs) one doing the writing. And I thought that was fascinating because, you know, journalists are so used to handing down judgments and and, and making observations. But when, when you're on the other side of the fence, tell us a bit about that process. It must have been hard coming to terms with. And did it, did it give you a fresh perspective on your journalistic work? Uh, and did it, did it infect your writing in any way, knowing what it felt like to be written about rather than the one doing the writing? Yeah. We had a guy in those days, Weymouth had a, um, a good evening paper and a nice guy called Matt Pittman was the local reporter. And we had a very good relationship and, and he was good. 
but they occasionally when other people sort of came and wrote pieces and misquoted you that was the the really weird thing you know i'm i'm sure there'd been times in the past when when i'd probably misquoted somebody or put got it in the wrong context as a journalist and then when it happens to you, you know, i'm ringing the guy up saying i didn't say that that's not what i said you know occasionally sort of tv companies would come and do features on it and you see the edited package and you think mm. Do I really sound like that? Do I really come across as a bit of an idiot like that? It, it was it was an odd, odd feeling. I have to say that my experience at Weymouth that that eighteen months afterwards made me a much better journalist. I really kind of knew what went on inside football clubs after that. I could. I always said that the only difference between Weymouth and Manchester United were the number of noughts on the checks. Yeah, because the politics, the personalities, the economics are the same. You're still trying to balance budgets. You're still trying to get the best players you can. You're still trying to carry everybody inside a club with you. So it gave me real insight into what was going on at football clubs after that. Yeah, I was grateful for that experience professionally, I must say. I picked out another interesting quote where you, you say, I, be, I began to understand how rows did break out in football. For years, I'd been writing columns and spats and tunnels. I had yeah. urged them in print to grow up. Now I understood more how they happened. I recognised the raw emotions involved. I can remember our big rivals were a club called Dorchester. They were, they're seven or eight miles away. And there was a, the big local derby was Dorchester. And on Christmas Eve... Uh, sorry, Boxing Day. It was probably one of the finest days of my life um, where we beat Dorchester 8-0 in, in the derby. And there were 3,700 in the ground, which for a Southern League game was absolutely astonishing. And of course, we were due the return fixture four days later. And Dorchester were good and angry, of course. There were 4,200 at the return. At least 3,500 were from Weymouth, expecting, because they were a big potential a lot of potential at the, the club and everybody was expecting a repeat. And of course it turned a bit sour and Steve got sent off. I believe it was the only sending off in his career. And he told me that he hadn't kicked the guy as the bloke was on the ground. And I believed him, but he later admitted to me years later that he had, well, there was no video evidence. We couldn't appeal or anything, but someone behind me in the crowd was started shouting a huge abuse at Claridge and it was, and I turned round, and um, and and the, it was the program editor, I think, for Dorchester. And I'd read in the program about huge budgets at Weymouth and Claridge, you know, Fancy Dan, and all this. And I just lobbed the program at him, and I said, you know, and I swore at him. And um, anyway, that kind of went around on message boards and made the local press and and all that. And and there I am in the heat of the moment, you know. If it had been me writing about me, I'd have said, grow up. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's pathetic. And I can remember another game when one of our players got sent off and we were going for the title and it was towards the end of the season. It was a big loss. We lost a midfield player early in a game and didn't win the game. And uh, afterwards, I was standing in the tunnel having a talk with, a, with the referee about the sending off. And one of the opposition players got between me and the ref and put his face in my face and started slagging me off. Why don't you F off? You, you know, you come up here with all your money and all that kind of thing, which wasn't true. But anyway, we had to take it. And two, two of my players had to come and, and rescue me, basically, because I'm shouting in his face by this point. 
you begin to understand how it happens. It's that kind of game. And, you know, you want people to behave properly. You want them to have decency. But suddenly, in the heat of the moment, when it all matters so much, it kind of, it got to me. I can't deny it. Yeah, but it's nice to be able to feed that back into your professional life as a journalist after that and have this this new perspective. Yeah, I tried to. I tried to understand then what people were going through a bit more. Yeah. That's that's why I think it did make me a, a slightly better journalist, Martin, yeah. I wonder how you reflect back on the book. I mean, first of all, like talk a little bit about the the, the impact it had, the the feedback you got from people. What was the what was the ripple effect after publication? I'm not sure it had the impact at the time. I thought it was was going to have. I mean, it was certainly the Weymouth message board was a buzz with with um with what it was about, and I it's been it was a slow burner. I think. Um, and afterwards, down the years, people have said to me, well, several people have said to me, this is the finest book about non-league ever written. And I would say back to them, well, it's in a very small field, isn't it? Let's be honest. And there aren't that many books written about non-league. And, and for, for someone on the inside to write a book, that's why I wanted to do it. Because I don't, I just, has anybody written about being a chairman before? I mean, you get Simon Jordan's autobiography, that kind of thing. And it's quite revealing in, it, in its way. But I wanted to write about the politics and that. And, and did it make it? I, I don't know. Other people will have to judge that. All I can tell you is I was very pleased with the book, I have to say. And I was particularly pleased that I was able to write a chapter about my father. That meant a lot yeah. to, to document my father and his role in my life and, and everything. Yeah. Just finally, how's your relationship with Weymouth, the club now? Do you still go to games? <laughs> it's very interesting. I was vice chairman at Salisbury. Steve went to Salisbury as manager and the club went bust and he said, come and help me. So I went and we started a club from nothing. and We got them up into the Southern League, up alongside Weymouth. Now, Weymouth will forever be my hometown football club, but there are certain people at that club still that were there when I was there. And... This is how petty local politics can be. Steve arranged a friendly with Weymouth pre-season about two or three years ago. And one of the club's sponsors and club official at Weymouth put a block on the friendly because Ian Ridley and Steve Claridge were involved, more particularly me. I'm still amongst certain people at Weymouth um, persona non grata because of what I wrote about them in in floodlit dreams you know i hold my head high because there's nothing nobody ever sued me nobody could deny or argue with anything in that book and uh i'm slightly sad if i'm honest i've been back to weymouth maybe half a dozen times steve went back about two years later as a bbc commentator for a game against nottingham forest in the fa cup and got dogs abuse which he did not deserve mainly because he got such a big payoff from a a new owner that didn't know what he was doing and paid him paid him off far too much money. So my feelings are very mixed about Weymouth, but simply because there are a few people there at the moment that that uh, I would not class them as um, either competent or nice people, to be honest. But you still you still reflect fondly on on the book and, and I reflect very fondly on the book. I reflect very fondly on that period of my life. My late wife, Vicky, helped me an awful lot through it. She'd have made a very good football director herself. I remember the opening night against Newport County was one of the best nights of my life. I'd spent summer worrying if this was going to work. Could we afford it? What if the crowds don't come back? They'd been 600 the previous season. And I shall never forget Vicky hoovering the lounge, the sponsor's lounge at five o'clock 
And the two of us sitting there worrying, this isn't going to work. This is going to cost me my life savings. And then she came to me half an hour before kickoff, said, have you had a look outside? I said, no, what's happening? And I looked out the window. She said, come and have a look. And there was a queue right down to the, through the car park. And we got 1,500 in that night from 600 at the last game of the previous season. And I remember very fondly. And I'll always, you know, we'll always have that year. And I'll always have that memory of Vicky and Steve, my great friend, Steve. And for him to say it was one of the best years of his career when he's been at Leicester, Wolves, which was a bad time for him. But Millwall, he loved Millwall. Pompey, of course. You know, it meant a lot. And I I do look back fondly. Yes, of course I do. Big thanks to Ian for his time and please listen out for next week's episode where Ian breaks down what it was like to ghostwrite Tony Adams' iconic autobiography Addicted. Check out Ian's website Floodlit Dreams in the show notes below where you can pre-order his forthcoming book A Breath of Sadness. And I want to leave you with two choices. Number one, sign up to the Backpage mailing list. The link is in the show notes below. Or number two, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can do both if you like, but please, please do one of them. This podcast is free and we earn virtually nothing from the occasional ad you hear on it. 